This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 15th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade talks about the role of inequality in past pandemics. The Black Death and the 1918 flu weren't exactly indiscriminate killers, and coronavirus may be walking a similar path. Then we have researcher Aaron Weck. He talks about recordings of more than one million earthquakes from deep under a dormant Hawaiian volcano. Now we have contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade. She wrote this week on historical pandemics and inequality. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. What made you decide to write this story, this story about how pandemics have affected different people differently in the past? So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was thinking about how I could contribute and also something that always comes out in in archaeological research or historical research is that whatever we're experiencing now, we are not the first or only ones. Both sort of the logistics of a pandemic and quarantine and also kind of the emotions around it. People in London, for example, knew that the Black Death was coming for months and just had to like wait for it, which was something that I was definitely feeling at the time. All these historians and archaeologists were like, COVID-19 is going to affect different people differently based on the existing stratifications and fault lines in our society. And that is, in fact, exactly what <laughs> happened. And right. you know, I thought it was, was interesting to also take a perspective of not only have pandemics happened before and quarantines have happened before, if you were paying attention to history, you knew exactly how this one was going to play out too, and it was going to be in a very unequal way. And I thought demonstrating how that had happened in the past would, would help us sort of understand what was happening now and why it was happening. You talk about the Black Plague, which when it happened, they said this disease is going to strike down the rich and the poor alike. But that's not actually what happened. So there's a bioarchaeologist named Sharon DeWitt who's looked at very carefully the health status of people who died during the Black Death in London in the cemetery called East Smithfield that was built for, for Black Death burials. And she can tell that people who were already in poor health and people who were older, exactly what we're seeing now, like basically people with pre-consisting conditions and, and older adults are more likely to have complications from COVID-19 and die from COVID-19. And that had not really been considered the case for the Black Death, but it turned out to be precisely what happened. And that also coincided with how rich or poor someone was? 
It's a little complicated because none of these graves contain even a headstone. And you can't really say this individual person was rich or poor, but something that was very interesting and sad that was happening in the century leading up to the Black Death, the late 1200s, early 1300s, was that there was like a lot of famines in Europe. There was some climatic instability and lots of harvest failed. Wages were really falling. 70% of England lived on or below poverty line as it was defined then Mm -hmm. in the cemeteries where people were buried before the Black Death. So obviously they're not dying of the Black Death. DeWitt can see this rise in poverty coincides with a rise in very poor health. So people show more signs of malnutrition, they're shorter, some enamel growth is disrupted in their teeth as children, which they didn't have enough food or they got sick or some kind of stress in their childhood. Those signs of frail health go up at the same time as poverty is increasing. So once you enter the Black Death, you have all these poor people who are also sicker people, Mm -hmm. just sort of a sicker population in general. And then lo and behold, sicker people are more likely to die during the Black Death. All right, let's move up in time and over to the United States. We're talking about when indigenous people that lived in this country were first exposed to certain infectious diseases by colonists, things like smallpox. And thinking about that time, it's been, well, they didn't have immunity. They weren't exposed to these pathogens before. And so they swept through and killed everyone. But as you talk about in your story, there was more going on. Can you expand on that? Was previous exposure not that important? Of course, acquired immunity to smallpox is important. Although lots of Europeans were not immune to smallpox. Everyone can die of smallpox, not just Native Americans. Lots of Europeans died too. But if you look at each of these epidemics and sort of their social context around them, each of these indigenous groups were, were really different. Each of these historical moments were really different. Each of these diseases were different. And the indigenous groups that were hit hardest by these diseases also happened to be the indigenous groups who were living under colonial rule and subjected to a lot of violence direct as in like war and attacks and indirect, like being more or less enslaved and moved off their land, moved away from their communities, away from their food sources, bad water. If you're in a mission, for example, you're like living in these really crowded, very unhealthy environments. Of course, you're going to get sick. And that really has more to do with the violent and oppressive social conditions that these groups were forced to live in rather than merely the fact that this was a new pathogen. And one of the pieces of evidence you talked about was a different group that encountered smallpox but didn't live under those kinds of conditions. Yeah. So this was the Awanichi in in this Yosemite Valley of California, and they were outside of the colonial state for a long time, well into the 19th century. They seem to have had an experience with smallpox. It's hard to know exactly the disease, but it seems probably to have been smallpox around 1800. And they hadn't had any contact with Europeans before that. The disease probably came from, started in missions or like people fleeing missions. And it was really devastating. They were a small population, small community to start with, and about 30% of them died, which is about the global rate for smallpox epidemics. It's not to say that that wasn't a horrible and devastating and traumatic event, but they also weren't dealing with the colonial oppression that prevented them from recovering. So basically what they did was when they realized they couldn't survive in their smaller numbers by themselves, they moved out of their homeland and to the territory of another tribe. And that allowed them to 
intermarry with those people and bolster their numbers again, preserve their culture. And then after a couple of decades, they came back to their homeland and and were able to continue their way of life for quite a while longer. So it's not that these epidemics didn't have biologically devastating effects, but if you're living outside of the structural violence of colonialism, it's much, much easier to recover from them and move forward. Moving forward in time, let's go to the 1918 flu. This, again, seems like something that was a generalist, a killer of all kinds of people. What kind of evidence do we have that it was affected by class and health status and things like that? A lot of reports and accounts during the 1918 flu will be like, this is really killing indiscriminately. And that was especially scary because it was a lot of young people who are otherwise healthy. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a particularly traumatic and dramatic experience to live through. There are demographers and sociologists who've looked at death certificates. And you can see that, for example, in a study in Oslo, Norway, the poorest neighborhood of, of Oslo had a 50% higher mortality rate than the richest neighborhood. Also, Native American groups in the U.S. were dramatically affected. The overall U.S. mortality rate was something like 0.7%, so like 0.7% of the whole U.S. population died in this epidemic, and something like 12% of the Navajo Nation died. Was there also an effect because of segregation on the Black people that lived in the U.S. at that time? Yeah, so the African-American experience with the flu is, is quite interesting because African-Americans did seem, or they did seem to get sick at lower rates than white people in the deadliest wave of the 1918 pandemic, which came in the fall of that year. And people sort of noticed this at the time. It was confusing. And I think most researchers agree now that it seems to be, in general, African-Americans had higher rates of death from infectious diseases in every year leading up to the 1918 flu. So like it seems Black people were more likely to be poor. They were more likely to sort of live in substandard housing. All of the same issues we're seeing today. They got sick in this first wave of the flu, but then that actually conferred some immunity in the second wave. But then even in the second wave, when African-Americans got sick from the flu, they were more likely to die. They were more likely to develop complications like pneumonia, Again, it's a little hard to tell exactly what was going on there, but it probably has to do with higher rates of things like tuberculosis going into the pandemic. The segregation was completely rampant in the country at the time, and Black hospitals cared for Black patients. Black doctors and nurses really made heroic efforts around this, but the facilities were limited, personnel was limited, and those facilities were quickly overwhelmed. So even though the infection rate among African-Americans was somewhat lower in the worst phase of this epidemic. There still wasn't enough resources to care for the people who got sick and needed it. The numbers you gave in your story were intense. Yeah. So if you look at in the first part of the 20th century, Black people were dying at a higher rate just of like regular, regular years, like regular <laughs> infectious diseases. They were dying at a higher rate than white people died during the pandemic flu. That was very shocking. And, you know, I think shouldn't be forgotten in this. Do you have some numbers on what's going on with coronavirus today? What the, the disparities look like? These obviously are still being gathered and changing right. a lot. But as far as people can tell now, it seems like Black and Hispanic people in the U.S., at least in cities, are two to three 
times more likely to die of COVID-19 than white patients. And also in many cities, including, I think, Washington, D.C. and St. Louis, an overwhelming number of hospitalized COVID patients have been Black, sort of overrepresented in the number of cases, the number of severe cases. It's also having big effects on certain Indigenous communities. The Navajo Nation, for example, has a very high per capita rate, and a lot of people there live in poverty. But also, the Navajo Nation is testing a lot more than other U.S. states. It's hard to tell if we're really measuring the same thing sometimes, but I think in general, for many countries, you can already see that COVID-19 is having a bigger effect on people who are already marginalized because of their class or because of their race or, or both. What does a historical perspective like this give us? Do you see it as a guide? I found it to be illuminating that we've lived through similar experiences before. And in some cases, things did really change after these events, especially the Black Death, which was truly unbelievably devastating. But for 1918, nothing really changed afterwards. The segregation of the medical system didn't change. The poverty and racism of U.S. society didn't change. And these pandemics are really dramatic events. When you're living through them, as we're seeing now, it's kind of impossible to believe that we could ever return to normal and that nothing will transform in our society. But actually, it's not the pandemic that transforms the society. It's people deciding to transform the society because of what they've seen during the pandemic. And that hasn't happened in other pandemics. That doesn't mean that it can't happen this time. You mentioned big changes, transformation after the Black Death in Europe. What, what was different at that time? What changed? After the Black Death, you can see quite a big drop in inequality in Europe. And basically the rich people, like the richest 10%, their iron grip on most of the resources went down. And that's because so many people died that the surviving workers could demand higher wages. They had more bargaining power. And also a lot of property went on the market from people dying as well. If you were a peasant farmer, who could never own land before, like suddenly there was land available for you to buy and you were making more money. I mean, it killed between 30 to 60% of people in Europe, even living through COVID-19. I can't imagine what that was like. But after that, plague sort of became entrenched. It became endemic and you'd have outbreaks every couple of decades. People got used to it. People learned to expect it and the rich learned how to protect themselves from it, whether that's by legal means of preserving their property intact, even if they were to die, or health means of leaving the city immediately upon hearing of the first case. In the case of the Black Death, it seemed to change society, to change inequality to some extent. But there have been other cases where nothing has changed or having this level of devastation reinforce big differences between groups of people. Once the rich people learn how to protect themselves plague becomes a disease of the poor in people's minds and doctors' minds, in the minds of societies. And then so when there's a plague outbreak in a poor neighborhood, it's like, they were poor, what do you expect? And sort of similar discriminatory thoughts and policies happen again with cholera, for example, which is caused by contaminated water, which of course, poor people are more likely to have to drink. And you see it, the propensity for, for illness being blamed on moral failing of the poor, These are sort of patterns of prejudice and discrimination you see over and over again, especially when an outbreak of a disease becomes recurrent. 
All right. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thanks, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent based in Mexico City. You can find links to her story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Aaron Weck about deep, repetitive earthquakes under a Hawaiian volcano that's been dormant for 4,500 years. Now you listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Have Aaron Weck. He and his colleagues write this week in science about repetitive deep earthquakes beneath a Hawaiian volcano. We're going to talk about how they recorded these quakes and what they can tell us about what's going on under a long dormant volcano. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Well, can you situate us first? What volcano are we going to focus on? So we're talking about Mauna Kea on the big island in Hawaii. So Mauna Kea is is the one actually with all the telescopes on top. It's been uh-huh. long dormant, but it's still an active volcano. It's been about 4,500 years since the last eruption? Yeah, that's right. So why focus on something that has been dormant for so long? It was an accident. So we, we initially set up an algorithm looking for tremor signals down by Kilauea. So we set this code up to look island-wide just because we could. And we started seeing these things and initially we were like, oh, that was weird. And I didn't really grasp the scope of it. But once once we looked at it in more detail, it was like, oh, this is a really interesting signal. And it's coming underneath from beneath Mauna Kea. And that in itself is especially fascinating. So we started looking into it in more detail. What exactly is weird about this signal? What What caught your attention about these quakes? Well, what first got my eye was that it was repetitive. Actually, it took me a long time to convince myself it was even real because it's just, it looks almost like a man-made signal. It happens every, you know, at the time when I was looking at this was a few years ago, it was every about 12 minutes. And it just, I mean, it's, it's so regular. And then when we started looking, I was like, okay, well, when did this start? So I backed up a week and looked at the data. It's still there. Backed up a month. Okay, it's still there. Backed up a year, five years, 10 years. Basically, we went as far as we could from when this highest quality station was installed on the island in 1999, and we could trace this signal all the way back to that point. That was when I was like, okay, this is really fascinating. So this is millions of earthquakes. Yes. And they repeat every seven to 12 minutes for decades. Do we know that it started then, or we just know that's when we started recording? So we know it goes back to at least 1999, and there's no reason to expect it didn't extend even further back in time. How energetic are these quakes? How strong are they? So these earthquakes are about a magnitude one and a half. But if you add all those up, it equates to about a magnitude three earthquake every single day. What I would just say is, you know, a magnitude three earthquake every day under a volcano, that would be weird under any volcano. That's unprecedented seismicity. And to have it underneath Mauna Kea is is even more surprising. People have been monitoring these volcanoes as, for a very long time. You talked about going back through the data. You talked about all the different stations. So why wasn't this something that anyone saw before? Well, a couple of different reasons. It's not a normal earthquake. They have a different frequency content than a, a typical tectonic earthquake. Just by the nature of the signal, they're harder to detect. So that's one reason. The second reason is 
There are stations on the northern part of the island of Hawaii, but Mauna Kea is a low-threat volcano, and it's, it's a dormant volcano, so there's not the same sort of attention looking in detail at the waveforms as there would be, say, under Mauna Loa or under Kilauea. What do you know about where these quakes are originating? What, what is happening under this volcano that could be causing this? Well, we know that the, that the earthquakes are happening about 20 to 25 kilometers deep. That's about at the base of the crust. And that's pretty typical for this type of earthquake where we see these at other volcanoes worldwide. We don't see them in this with you know, this kind of activity level, but we see bursts of these occasionally and, and they tend to be in that depth range. What we know underneath Mauna Kea is it's still an active volcano, but it's in the later stages of its life. So as the Pacific plate is dragging across the Hawaiian hotspot, Mauna Kea is increasingly being separated from that hotspot, and so it doesn't have the same magmatic driver underneath funneling magma to the volcano itself. Volcanism is, is slowing down, and so what we think is that there's actually just magma ponded beneath the base of the crust just cooling there. How would having a big pond of magma underneath the volcano cause these earthquakes? What, what would the process be like? We settled on this interpretation that there was a particular crack geometry with some mass fluxing through this crack. Do you mean there's like channels or spaces and there's something kind of moving through them? There's like a vertical crack and a horizontal crack. And if you get some mass fluxing through that system, it would generate the type of signal that we're seeing. Huh. Because it would go up and then to the side and then up and to the side and like... So like, yeah, you have this, this vertical conduit pressure builds up and then the mass would go into this overlapping horizontal conduit. One part is expanding, the other part's contracting. And you can see that in the waveforms and in the way they manifest on the, on the surface. You also mentioned that these earthquakes are influenced by the tides. What, why is that happening? One of the observations that, that helped lead us to that interpretation was seeing how the earthquakes reacted to external stress. And one of the ways you can get external stress is through the tide. And so we were looking at the tides and seeing how that affected these earthquakes. And what we found was that when, when the tides were such that it increased compression, so it just squeezed on that part of the earth, we get this decrease in earthquake rate. And the thinking there was, well, this compression is reducing pore space, so that reduces the, the ability for these fluids to actually move through the cracks and pressurize that crack chamber. We also saw that these earthquakes responded to local, regional, and even global earthquakes. So when an earthquake would happen, you would get this triggered response where suddenly this repeating earthquake, you get a whole bunch of them. Hmm. And that wouldn't happen if, say, this was just magma coming up. It's unlikely. It points more towards a fluid source. We've been talking about mass fluxing through cracks, but what exactly is this mass? What's moving through these conduits? There are a few options. It could be magma is ascending and going through some crack and causing this kind of earthquake. That seemed a bit unlikely underneath Mauna Kea for that to be happening for so long and without any signs of surface deformation or changes in activity at the volcano. So we kind of rejected that hypothesis. The other option is it could be magmatic gases separating out of the magma itself. Now, often when we think about these fluids separating out of the magma, it's because the magma is ascending. As magma ascends, you know, it's coming to shallower and shallower levels. And so you get some decompression. These gases can turn into little bubbles and they can grow and they eventually separate out. That process 
requires magma ascent. And so we said, well, that, again, seems unlikely because for that to happen, you'd have to have 20 years of magma continually ascending, and we don't think that's happening. So it turns out there's actually another way that initial separation of gases out of the magma is known as first boiling. But there's a second process called second boiling where actually the magma is just hanging out. It's cooling, and as it cools, it starts to crystallize. That crystallization process starts to raise the concentration of these gases within the residual liquid of the magma, then it starts getting pushed out and dissolved as well. So then that's a long-term stable process of gases separating out of the magma. Hmm. And so those encounter the crack and that's when you get this periodic earthquake? Correct, yeah. Do you expect if you looked at other volcanoes that you would see a periodic earthquake like this if you looked at either dormant or active ones? I mean, on the one hand, I would say I, I don't think that this is happening in very many places. First of all, when these, these gases are moving in the lower crust, they typically do so aseismically. It may be that under Mauna Kea, because it's been so long since it erupted, that you've had time for the fluids to create more established focused pathways in this particular crack geometry. If that were the case, then maybe longer dormant volcanoes would be more likely candidates for something like this. It does seem to be that this is kind of a special case with a particular geometry. However, having said all that, the interesting thing, and we talked about this earlier, is this activity was hiding in plain sight. It does point to the possibilities that there could be things like this happening elsewhere. Stepping back, what this means, it probably means more for volcano seismology than it does for Mauna Kea itself. So when we see these at other volcanoes in real time, we don't really know, okay, well, is that magma cooling? Is that magma moving? Is it what's happening? And at Mauna Kea, because of its unique geology, where it's in its later stages of its evolution and it's been separated from the hotspot, we kind of can throw out the variable of magma ascent. Given that there are magma bodies hanging out underneath lots of volcanoes all over the world, this is probably the most likely explanation generally when you see these events. All right. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. Aaron Weck is a research geophysicist for the U.S. Geological Survey at the Alaska Volcano Observatory. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.